I grew up, well, I should say, in our house, we have a fictional character. His name is the Boule Rat. We do. It's the Boule Rat. He, he comes to harvest teeth, is what he does. When children lose their teeth, the Boule Rat comes to the house. I did not originate this. Somebody who sits over there I inherited this, but we did build upon We did. I did build upon it. In our home, the boule rat comes whenever someone loses a tooth. The boule rat is large and is kind of a jerk. He, he does not like kids. He smokes. He's a smoker. And he flies in from Toledo. That is what our children are told. Of course, we're playing with them and they know it, but the Boulay Red flies in from Toledo. He's frustrated. The reason he's frustrated is because I, as a parent, am frustrated if I cannot find the tooth. So the rat is, by extension, frustrated so that preemptively we can say, make sure the tooth is very findable because he's flying all the way in from Toledo and it, he just he gets upset. When I was growing up, the boule rat did uh, similar things. The tooth was placed actually not under a pillow in my home when I was a kid. It was placed under a pewter mug on the bookshelf in the living room, which I thought was kind of fun. Like, oh, not only do we have our own rat, but um, who would want a rat? I was proud of this, people. I was proud of this. Like, not only do we have our own rat, but we don't put it under the pillow. We put it under the pewter mug. I, now that I'm an adult, I simply know that is because my parents were lazy and it is hard to remember. You know, as parents, it's hard to remember the pillow because you have to wait in the cycle to fall asleep. Uh, so anyway, the boule rat. And the boule rat, when I was growing up, was kind of a utility man. He would do all sorts of things. He'd hide Easter eggs. It was just, if you needed something, the rat would do it for you. He's, he's for hire if you need him. You can have the rat. I'll give you his number. I'm telling you this. I know it has nothing to do with Christmas, but if I'm going to talk about uh, Santa a little bit today, and I'm going to talk about uh, some of the forces at work during Christmas that help shape the holiday we celebrate. And if any point, like I push you in a way that you get all frustrated and bent out of shape, you can tell yourself, well, that guy has a rat. What does he know? There you go. I just gave you your exit strategy. Uh, now we'll pray, and I'll give you your exit strategy. Lord, we pray you would bless our time as we turn to the Word and consider uh, this time that we call Christmas. Uh, Father, we're grateful that you've given uh, us opportunity to pause and reflect on your Word and the work you've done through Jesus Christ. Lord, we acknowledge that he is Lord and Savior of the world. And we pray that uh, the whole world would come to know that and bow in worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, normally here on Sundays, we, the way a message will work is we open the Bible and uh, we read the word and we kind of wrestle with what does it mean. And then finally we come up from air and we look out and say, what is, how, does it, how does it impact the life and times around us? So we start with the word. We try to mine it a little bit, and then we apply it. Today's an exception. We're going to do it in the opposite direction today. So 
Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the world around us, uh, the move around us, kind of, of, of what we see and how we experience it, and then we'll kind of touch on the word as we go along. And so we'll be at various places in the Bible this morning. Um, if you're the kind of person that really must have your Bible open to a specific place, I'd say go to Luke chapter 2. I'll read from there, but we'll read from several places, and you, you won't have time to follow along, so you can hang on in Luke 2, but... Again, today, we're looking out at the life around us, and then we're going to touch on the Word and see what God has to say. For my part in this uh, message, um, I'm working to stay out of your living room with this Christmas tradition. So I know I cannot win there. Um, and um, I also don't know what's going on in your living room. How, the, how all of Christmas kind of percolates and filters into each one of our homes is unique and different. Uh, and at one level, you as parents are responsible for making those decisions. Um, so what my job is, is to kind of look at uh, what Christmas is doing outside of our homes, kind of point it out, and just as long as you will admit that the forces that start outside do not stop at the walls of your home. They continue all the way at some level, in some way, shape, and form. So I'll point those out. You're, for your part, this is what I would ask, is that you avoid the, well, I did such and such, and I turned out okay, attitude. For one, you don't really know if you turned out okay. <laughs> like, uh, can I have a vote in that one? And secondly... Secondly, it is exceedingly difficult to determine the effect of an idea on your life. It's just hard to know what has shaped you and how it has shaped you. So what I would say is, especially to those uh, who uh, tonight Santa will show up and go down your vent stack uh, to your boiler and climb out of your boiler... Uh, or whatever, to you who are doing that tonight, inevitably in your home, your children will shift from myth to truth at some point, and you want to be well-equipped to have a healthy biblical language at that point. So either way, I think this may be useful. And I know, some, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, maybe I am, so I'm mindful of that, but we all love those who are one step in a different place, and and... We are ambassadors of truth, so you share the role with me. Okay, this morning is kind of lighthearted, hopefully. We're going to look five ideas about Christmas. So it's just going to go one, two, three, four, five. Five kind of shaping ideas, only about two and a half of which is Santa. But uh, hopefully we, we come away with a, a better idea of what Christmas is. And so here's the most obvious. I'll start with obvious. Sometimes obvious is actually... Very subtle because we, we don't notice it. But the first idea is that Christmas is a gathering festival. It's a gathering festival. In other words, there's something that's wholly other than Christ or Santa that's happening at Christmas. That's profoundly significant to people. The chance to stop work and gather and be cozy and intimate, and for life to quiet down. The, the reflective nature of Christmas, where you look back on all that's transpired this past year and think of it. Right? I mean, Christmas and New Year's are almost connected as sisters in the sense of 
parts, reflection. In fact, a lot of the gifts you have, right? If you have a tight, financially tight year, Christmas is financially tight. If you have a financially big year, sometimes Christmas is financially big. It's, it's a reflection of the past year, whereas New year, in, it breeds into New Year's, which is kind of an anticipation of the next year. That is happening whether God exists or not among people. It's just happening at Christmas. And in fact, that is what is very... Um, people talk about at Christmas. It's a high time for people, and it can be a low time for people. It's that way, not because of Christ or Santa. It's that way because of this idea that this is a, a, a kind of a snow day, an official national snow day, where for a week we just kind of close in and we're together. In fact, many of the Christmas songs that we sing don't have anything to do with Santa or Christ. They have to do with this very idea. In fact, the Christmas song, Nacking Cole, I don't like to sing. <laughs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your tune. That song has nothing about Santa in it. I'm dreaming of a white, Christ- white Christmas. It's, it's an idea. It's a spirit we're dreaming we're hoping, we're hoping that, have you ever ridden with sleigh bells, jingle belling? And I was in Germany over, uh, I had chestnuts, roasted chestnuts. They are not good. <laughs> I do not recommend them. But we sing these songs nonetheless because people have this need to pause and to gather and celebrate and to live and to purpose their lives That is happening at Christmas regardless of the stories. The narrative is on top of that. And I think God recognizes this. God recognizes that people have a need for festival. People have a need to gather. And in fact, in his world, he instituted festivals that did very much this sort of thing. They didn't happen in December. They happened October The festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles, that was happening after all the crops were brought in, after all the threshing of the wheat was done, after all the harvest, when when the agricultural community, which was all of them, could step back and look at the year and go, and for those who are in kind of the outdoor trades, you know that the winter's slow anyway. So when all of the work of the year was done, there was a festival. Now, I think... There was already a festival before God gave it to the Hebrews that the pagan people already had a festival. Pagan peoples, they had festivals when you planted and festivals when you sowed and, and, and harvested. Those were, those were how you did it because you went to your gods when you were planting to say Lord, to their gods, their various gods, give us a good harvest. And then when you, when you would harvest, you'd come back to the gods and say, we thank you for the harvest. And the Lord recognizes those two very times and says, by the way, we'll call that one Passover or First fruits, and we'll call this one the festival of the ingathering when things are gathered in, or to tabernacles or booths. So the Lord kind of goes to the places where people are already doing this sort of thing, and he assigns it significance. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 16. It's also in Leviticus 23, a similar writing. It says this, Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your feast, you 
your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. It's almost like God gave his people Christmas. This time. Now, we would say that this time is happening on the calendar. It's Oktoberfest is when it's happening for the people. But in our culture, it is, this idea has shifted to Christmas. And I'm saying this because the reason I want to start here is because in the conversation that often occurs in the church about put, you know, we need to save Xmas for Christ and to fight back and forth, and instead of feeling like Christmas is being assaulted, we might say that at some level, this need for a festival is pre-existent. It's already here, and it's an opportunity as Christians to assign true meaning to the year. This is a positive opportunity that everyone around us, whether they're celebrating our kind of Christmas or not, they are showing up at this very time of year with similar expectations. Their reflective heart, a longing heart, a heart that had expectations that were and were not met. And we are given the blessed opportunity to share the true Christ with them here. And so I would say, as far as the first point, Christmas is a gathering festival, and Christians bring the truth to that festival. Be thoughtful about that. Idea number two. The birth of Christ is not the pinnacle event of the faith. The birth of Jesus Christ is not the pinnacle event of our faith. The cross and the empty tomb are the pinnacle event of our faith. That's what it, that is what our faith is about. That is around, that's the idea that we gather around, is the cross and the empty tomb. And if the enemy is strategic, and we know he is, he is in the practice of shifting people from the main idea to the ideas on the periphery. That's what the enemy does. I was driving the other day with one of my sons. By the way, we are not anti-Santites, okay? <laughs> so, like, when our house, if, you know, if our kids would ask us, we'd go, no, he didn't exist, and go tell all the kids in your school that. That's not us. Okay, every year I watch Miracle on 34th Street, and every year I feel like I could have made a better case before the judge than that guy for Santa, you know? Every year we watch... Rudolph, or every year watch whatever that we have a whole host. We enjoy we enjoy the festivities of the stories. It's fun for us. But he says to me, and I'm saying that to say he says to me quite unprompted and quite on his own. He says, "Dad, I feel like um, you can tell how Satan is at work at Christmas." And I was it was only a week or so ago that he said this, and so I was I was writing this message and thinking about it, and I was like, "All right, let's see what he says." And he actually said something uh, I thought was quite novel for him, for his age. He said, well, because the way I see it is the, really the big holiday in the church should be Easter. And we make all this big deal about Christmas. And it's like, and we don't do anything for Easter. You know, and he's right. You know, we have campaigns to put Christ back in Christmas. I've never heard of a campaign to put spring forth back into spring break. In fact, some of you will undoubtedly be on a baseball field 
the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Day. Like, I'm not judging you. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm not. I'm just saying, like, that's where we really, that's how downplayed that epic event is. I mean, that event is the triumphant moment of, the, of Christ and all of his followers. That is a day where you do wish you weren't in a gym. You wish you were in a cathedral 40 stories high with stained glass and choirs. It's that kind of day, and it has been so downplayed. And attention has been put on the Christmas. And I say that because we can fight and fight and fight in our heart to put Christ back into Christmas, but we can be, it does not necessarily correlate to us having, having actually put the right Christ back into Christmas. That even if, you know, in, in the shift from the center of the idea to the periphery of the idea, we could become guilty of talking about Christmas in, in a way where we're actually talking about the wrong kind of Christ. Is the Christ of your Christmas, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, is it limited to that? Is it restricted to that? Is it, is it this very narrow image right here? Or is it the broad image that's being expressed by the fact that God brought people from the corners of the earth to worship him? Like, what is that? Have we brought in, or are we bringing in the wrong small version of Christ? If you look at the scriptures, by the way, the songs we sang, half the Christmas songs we sang, the third and the fourth verses of those songs very often transition to the great hope we have in Christ on account of the cross and the grave. One of them ended with the second coming. Because that should always be in our heart. If you look at the word, this is the ordinance the Lord gave us. The ordinances the Lord gave us was baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of which look to the cross and the empty tomb. They're both oriented around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Paul the Apostle resolved to know one thing that's Christ in him in Waddling clothes? No, it's Christ and him crucified. There's this notion that we should not talk for very long about Jesus Christ unless we're talking about the whole story. And we should be alert if we talk for very long about Christ and we don't talk about the whole story. Even the scriptures we read at Christmas, the very scriptures, like from Luke 2 or from Isaiah, they have a longing for a greater idea. In Luke 2, it's, there is the shepherds in the fields watching the flocks by night, and the angels come. And what do they say? They say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is what? Christ the Lord. Christ. He is the Savior, the Lord. In other words, at that first hearing by the shepherds, their, their hearts are given a longing to the salvation that God promises. When we read Isaiah 9, we read it Christmas Eve, we read it all the time. For us, unto us, a child is born, unto us, a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. That is not talking about the birth scene. That is talking about the glory of our Lord and Savior.
This Christmas, when you share Christmas, even when you get to the story with the children, use, use this manger scene as a starting point to tell the whole story. Use the Advent as a chance to talk about the adventure of Christ. And I think your home will be healthier. Okay, number three. <clears throat> now we're getting to Santa. Okay, um, if the enemy is strategic, and we know he is, it should not surprise us that he places alongside of this religious holiday a competing narrative. It competes for airtime. It competes for song time. It, it competes with belief system. And I know some of you are saying, ah, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just a jolly myth. Well, I got to tell you, I've discovered that every one of Satan's myths is jolly until I wisen up. He murders us with jolly. So I'm not so sure how innocent it is. But <clears throat> here are some ideas, some forces at play, okay, that at some level penetrate into the walls of our home and do some kind of work. Here, the number three. Santa is a person or a personhood who shares godlike qualities and purpose who upon us reaching an age of reason come to the conclusion that he is a total lie. I'll say it again. Santa is a person who carries many of the qualities that God does and does many of the things that God does. Though when we arrive at an age of reason we learn that he is a total lie. I know there's a Saint Nick. I'm talking about the Santa that we play with. It's a total lie. He shares God-like qualities. He is omniscient. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He has the ability to fold time and space. I mean, the time-space continuum, I learned that phrase in a Santa movie. He has this magical ability, right? He has the um, ability to do magical things, many magical things. He comes from a magical place that no one can find. He serves the role as judge. That's just pretty well aligned to ignore. He does all those things, and when you grow up, you are taught that it is a lie. Even, by the way, in the movies, when parents don't believe, have you ever noticed what happens when parents don't believe in the movies? You know, the little child will say, yeah, but my dad doesn't believe. And Santa will say, well, that's, I know, we need the spirit of Christmas. If my, my sleigh is ever going to get off the ground, people need to believe in me. It, it, what it actually does, and that is kind of the going theme, by the way, if you don't watch these shows anymore, we watch them every year, is Santa needs faith to be. He's dependent on your faith. I'm just saying that is a competing idea. It's in competition with the truth. Now, this may by itself be not have any noticeable effects. I mean, I'll admit it. I think there are many, many, many people who uh, are none the worse for wear for having played the story. But I will say, in this, in this life and time, where everything that's true is competed against, 
I just want to, you know, throw out there, do you really want to bring and kind of incubate a lie within your home? When, when we look out, I mean, marriage is being thrown up as a lie, and I don't, I don't mean it with the dialogue on marriage. I mean, just I, men and women, one after another, make vows until death do they part, or a year passes. I mean, so everywhere you look, we've made bold statements about truth, and then we make very, very, very questionable behavior about the statements we make. Almost as to say to the next generation, well, that was a lie also. And so is that. The American dream is a lie. This is a lie. This is a lie. This is a lie. And in many ways, everywhere you look now, the truth is a lie, or, or there really is no truth, or the, the, everything is subject to what you want to believe. You just got to have faith. It's, this idea is, is that whatever truth you have is sustained by the power of your faith. It sounds, sounds like I saw it in a Christmas movie. There is a, a scripture in the Gospel of John, John 18, 38. <clears throat> uh, Jesus Christ is speaking to Pontius Pilate. This is right before he goes to the cross. And he's being interviewed or interrogated by Pilate. And at one point Jesus says this, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. To which Pontius Pilate replies with one of the most bleak statements in the Bible. He says, what is truth? And I, you know, maybe I don't have the right, we don't have the right to know exactly what's going on in Pilate's mind, but it is a despairing comment. It's the kind of comment that someone would say when they're at the end of a long political career and nothing is true. When they've, they've grown up in a world of myths, like, you know, a, amoral or immoral gods who do the same things that people do and uh, no code of morality around them and, you know, might makes right working out. I mean, does this sound familiar to our culture? And over here, when you do have a people like the Hebrew people that are making true truth claims about a kind of savior, there's an entire kind of lie that comes alongside to compete with it so that people might miss it. Let me read you. I'll read you. This was an inscription found on a Roman calendar. So it wasn't in English, it was in Latin. But this is what it said. This is the world into which Jesus Christ was born. Whereas the providence which has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar whom it filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind and who, being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. Caesar was considered regularly the savior of the world. That's the world. It's when you surround a truth with a thousand lies, the truth becomes indistinguishable. Have we done that? Are we doing that? Do we do want to do that? Those are the questions we should ask ourselves about Christmas. <clears throat> By the way, I will say this. 
the story of Santa can be done and played out in your home, I believe, without making a specific truth claim. This is, I think, important. This is very practical, so it's just at a very practical level right now. You can play Santa in your home without making a truth claim. You know, anyone who has small children knows that you can play a game. Kids play house. Very convincingly, they play house. Kids play school. Kids play all sorts of things. And kids love it, by the way, when their parents condescend and play with them in those stories. And they're totally happy. And there's times that you're playing, and you're playing so well that the kid will turn to you and go, is that real? And you go, no, no, we're just playing. And they go, oh, okay. And they they don't go, oh, well, what are we doing this for then if it's not real? Like, I'm not really the mommy? Are you telling me that this, you know, Betty Cracker making bake oven is not legit? They don't, they don't, you don't burst their bubble. It's almost, I got to tell you, it's almost like you bless them. Like you're with them and you're exerting energy to play with them. And when you see, you know, that is, are there really monsters under the bed? No, we're just, we're just horse around. Oh, okay. You know, and she jumps back on the bed and back off the bed and back on the bed. It, there's, there is an odd fraternal camaraderie that comes with your children when you play with them, but you do not need to make a truth claim. You can say, no, we're just having fun. And then they don't wake up to a lie. It's practical. Point number four. Santa is a myth built around Behavior, reward, or deservedness. So it is a myth that is built on the premise of you getting what you deserve. That's how it works. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Right? So be good for goodness sake. For goodness sake, just be good. I don't think it's that, but for goodness sake. That's how parents say it. For goodness sake, just be good. There's an idea that if you're good, hear me out. If you're good, you get blessed. And if you're bad, listen, this sounds subtle, but this is important. If you're bad, you don't get punished. You just get what? Coal. Which, by the way, in the St. Nicholas tradition was still a gift. When he's coming to poor homes and putting things in stockings over the fire and all you get is coal, it still burns. Okay, so it's a mean gift. A, a mean is an average or plain gift. But in our world, do your kids ever get coal? I mean, I would say it, and I will say it. I said in the first service, I did meet somebody, by the way, who did get coal one Christmas. He got expelled. So we got coal. But I would love, I would love to meet you if you had the gall or the courage one Christmas, like when so when Tommy like runs downstairs for you to say, I'm sorry, Tommy, we we ran the numbers this year and ah, you were naughty. Wow, Sally, you were so good this year. Here's your presence. In fact, we had twice as much money to spend on you, Sally, because Tommy, like, if you've done that, I, like, wow. 
I almost want to say good job, but I'm not sure I can. <laughs> but I am impressed. But so here's the reality is, first of all, we teach that in this life, okay, so here's the theology that's creeping out of it, okay? Out of this force, the theology that's creeping out is, in this world, you, you are judged by your merit. And if you do well, you get rewarded. And if you don't do well, you get nothing. Okay, that's not the truth, by the way. That is a competing narrative. That is not how it is in the word of God. And then, the bar for nothing, for naughty, is so low that it really is only theoretical. In other words, the only one who ever gets coal is Hitler. It's the same only guy. There's only one guy in hell. It's Hitler, and he's with a lump of coal. <laughs> that ends up kind of what ends up coming when we tell the story is we're saying, well, you know, be naughty or nice, be naughty or nice, but everybody's nice because the theo- theoretical bar is so low. I know this is the Santa story, but I will say that theologically is the competing idea with our response to the Lord. Is it not? You ask those outside the walls of the faith, and they'll say, well, I expect to go to heaven because I did good things. And in fact, they're convinced that pretty much everybody they know has done enough good things because the bar is so theoretically low that... They, in fact, they think typically there is no hell. That the worst case scenario is annihilation. You just cease to be. This is the default theological position of our time. But it is not what the Lord says. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God not by works, so that no man may boast. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift that is not based upon merit. I will say here that, as I imagine playing Santa, I don't see the gain in using this idea. So, like, you know, again, we, we play in our house. We boule rat, remember? So we're worse off than anybody. Um, we play in our house. We do a lot of role playing and that kind of stuff and ha-ha and playing. And I get all that. I can see playing Santa. I cannot see the gain in my home for the naughty and nice theory. Because there are other accounts that are better and more honest. Like, even if you're going to play Santa, why can't Santa just give gifts because he loves people? Like, I like, I, I like that story better. Santa gives gifts be, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. He says, really? Well, we're just playing. But love is pretty important. Who else gave us a gift? There you go. I'm just saying, I don't see the gain in leveraging that lie with the baggage it might carry. Point number five. Oh, well, some of you will say, I'm sorry, I will say this before I go. Some of you say, well, John, the reason I use the naughty and nice at Christmas is I can manipulate their behavior for the month of December. 
which is so problematic that I'm just going to like shine a light on that so that you see it and we're going to move on. Like, dysfunction, okay? Don't do that. Although it is resident in all of us, okay? So I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Like, that, that creature lives in me and I, I fight it as well. Like the elf on the shelf. I love the elf on the shelf. Do you know the elf on the shelf? The elf on the shelf is this thing you buy, and supposedly he's like an ambassador of Santa, and he watches your kids and reports back. I think the idea is genius. I wish I'd have thought of it. I'd be a millionaire. I can totally, by the way, understand people playing elf on the shelf for fun. And in fact, what happens in most homes is it's more like a Where's Waldo? Where's the elf today? Go find the elf. Fabulous, but I don't see the gain in leveraging that idea. But I do love Elf on the Shelf. Number five. And this one is really only half Santa. It's probably more our American culture. So let's just say Christmas as it's celebrated in America revolves around material objects. Material blessing, material gifting. We get stuff at Christmas at a time when we might otherwise be worshiping the giver of eternal life. We are bombarded, and more than that, we bombard our children. We are the instruments of their confusion. Have you ever tried to read the gospel account of the birth of Christ by the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve, five minutes before you open presents? Not very profound. It's almost awkward because what you've done is you've kind of set up this huge event, this huge trip, this big trip to the amusement park. And right when you get to the amusement park, you say, how about we circle up and just pray for the lost and poor of this world? And then we'll go get some cotton candy. It's just, it's not a recipe for for profundity. And we feel that. And sometimes you wonder, like, why can I not pull Christ in at this very special moment? And I think the Lord would say, because you have not set the stage. Everything around is saying object. That blessing is material. That if you do well, you get materially blessed. That our hope is to get a gift and, and not to have a giving spirit. That we... We, we just embrace the getting as though we are the one in the manger receiving the gifts. Do you know our response as believers for the gift of eternal life is eternal, worshipful indebtedness to the Lord and Savior where we look for a cross to grab and bear and walk in his path of shame and rejection so that he might be glorified. That is a competing narrative. When we watch our commercials, we see this. Give yourself the gift of Christmas. Now that is just genius. <laughs> Give, so you can actually do it for yourself and feel generous. <laughs> I'm going to be a giver this year. I'm going to give myself the gift of Christmas. 
We are preaching that goodness warrants material blessing. We're preaching that satisfaction should be found in material things. There's an old song, Santa Baby. I think Marilyn Monroe originally sang it. Um, Michael Buble has a great version of it that's out, though it's Santa Buddy. Once you get past that, the song is great. But this is the things he asks for. You ready? He goes, uh, so Santa Buddy. Um, this is the first thing he wants is a Rolex. And then he wants a 62 convertible. Steel blue, is what he says. Then he wants a yacht. He says, it's not a lot, Santa. Just want a yacht. And then he says, I would like a deed to a platinum mine. Like, to the absurd, right? A deed to a platinum mine. Then he asked for Canucks tickets, which I didn't know he was from Canada. Those go pretty cheap, Canucks tickets. So that one's pretty easy. At the very end, he says this. He says, Santa, you know, of course, that I believe in you. The question is, do you believe in me? You know, that the song is fun, but it's telling. Who, what is Christmas really about? Is it about us? I will say at this, uh, at this time in Christmas, with so many gifts around children, Especially, and, I, and I'm sorry, if you're, if you're old and gray and you're like, well, I don't have kids and this is irrelevant, you, you might have grandkids and you may be, in fact, you are the biggest perpetrators of this of all. <laughs> but, but still, nonetheless, you know people who are not thinking in fully right ways. And so, listen, as a community, there are ways that we can, we can bring a giving spirit to the lives of our children. Not because the meaning of Christmas is to be giving. It's not. The meaning of Christmas is to recognize the Savior who gifted us with eternal life. But nonetheless, right, at least getting them to giving helps them appreciate the power of a gift, which I would say, just as a technique, I, again, I see a greater gain, by the way, when there's a gift under the tree from Uncle James. They have to open the gift and learn how to say thank you, even though it is the wrong thing. That is a lesson that has to be learned. To be thankful for the giver. Which is a little hard. When it's Santa, it's like, Santa did it again. Right? And then the poor parent kind of sits in the corner. Oh, I messed up, I guess. Right? Whereas when names are on the table, there is that exchange of you must show thankfulness. And we actually drive our kids through a test on this. We say, let's talk about thankful. I say, say to one of my sons, if you get a ballerina outfit, what will you say? I will say thankful. If you get a dead snake, what will you say? I will say thankful. If you get an electrocuted bomb, you know, we just, we go all the way up so that, you know, at least they'll say thank you. So that's one thought. The second thing is there's a way to cultivate a giving spirit with your children, and that is by at least pushing them through the motions of giving. And I mean this. Even if you take them to Toys R Us, give them $20 and say you have to spend $10 on each one of your two siblings. Like, I don't care what you buy, but you have to think about them. Don't go buy what you want and put their name on it. Go buy them a gift. At least you're making them. It's like park task training. It's like the Lord says, how about you obey me, and then you'll believe me? Okay? How about you pray, and then you'll understand why you pray? Sometimes we just need to do what God asks us to do, go through the motions, and then the meaning will come second. With the children, the same way, you can maybe fuel, fuel these exercises. Here's money. You have to go buy your brothers and sisters Gifts. 
I'll give you one more example on this point because this is a challenging point for all of us. Every year, my wife and I, we get a, a magazine from a ministry we support. It's a, <clears throat> a well-done catalog with, for $5, you can buy medicine for someone in China. For $10, you can buy Bibles for people in Somalia. It's the various things, all the way up to, for $15,000, you can build a hospital in Zimbabwe. Um, the various things. And with our kids, we do a matching with them. We say, if you give a dollar, we give some portion. And that allows them to kind of reach for a real object, but it requires their own sense of sacrifice and play that if they want to give a hundred dollar they want to get a hundred dollar thing, they have to find ten of their own. Um, it feels like it is ministered. There's a lot of forces at Christmas. So at the first we need to recognize that people in our culture are going to gather and celebrate regardless of Christ and Santa because this is a gathering time and this is our opportunity. This is an opportunity when their ears are open and their hearts are fresh to assign true meaning to what's happening. And this is a time when in our story we have the chance to preach the true Christ that is in Christmas but it is not the Christ of the manger scene it's the Christ of the cross. This is a season for the truth. This is a season to know of grace and not of works. And this is a season that is not about our earthly gifts, but it's about our heavenly gifts. Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, you're good and you're kind to us. Lord, I, you looked out on each household and I pray that you would just bless the way they, we all answer this question, Lord. This is not a law. This is a principle that comes before us, Lord. We know that you have freed us in Christ, that we are subject to the Spirit, conviction of the Spirit in accordance with the Word. And this is one of those things, Lord, that sits in the area of Spirit leading, Lord. And so we pray for that for each family, Lord. And I do lift up especially those who are outside of the knowledge of Christ, who this year may just say something to somebody in this room, may express a little bit of loneliness because things didn't turn out the right way or may express a, a sense of hopelessness or meaningless or may just be a frustrated question about why things are the way they are, Lord. And I pray that you would make us a ready people not to give them seven bullet points to the cross, but to talk about our love for Jesus. Lord, make us the best kind of evangelist. Especially now, Lord, when the whole, our whole world seems to be gathering for a festival. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>